Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Study. Today, I commence with the study of 1 John. We're going to start with chapter 1, verse 1, and go to verse 10. I'm going to simply call it fellowship. Koinonia, one of the one of my favorite Greek words in the New Testament, fellowship, koinonia. We start with, well, let's do some introduction to the book. First, who was the author is John, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, and James and John, the son of Zebedee. I think his mother was named Salome, if I remember correctly. He, this John was the author of the Gospel of John and Revelation. So he's got a total of three letters, one gospel, and one apocalyptic book. Five books of the New Testament out of 27, so he's a heavy hitter. He's the apostle that lived longer than all the rest of them. Unlike most New Testament letters, unfortunately, the letter doesn't tell us who wrote it, but that's not a problem because there's so many quotes from the church fathers that say that John wrote it. Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Origen all say that John wrote the book. As far as we know, no one else was ever even suggested by the early church. And then there's internal evidence. The style of the Gospel of John is remarkably similar to the first letter of John. So it's John that wrote the book. When did he write it? Now, this is more controversial. Most say the end of the first century, and the reason they say that... For example, the NIV Study Bible says 85 to 95 A.D., and the reason they say that is because the letter builds on the theme of the Gospel of John, which most scholars today date at the end of the first century, but I don't believe that. Notice that the trend is now pushing the dates for all of the books, including the Gospel of John. Earlier, liberals used to love to stretch it out into the 100s A.D., but now A.T. Robinson, who was the honest-to-God A.T. Robinson, I think it was, you know, the liberal, he's... He was the bete noir of conservatives when I was going to seminary. Well, as he got older in life, he pushed the book dates of the New Testament books until finally at the end of his life, he was saying that all of the books were before written before AD 70. And it's, impo- it's necessary to say that the Gospel of John, that, that the, the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, was written before AD 70 because if you say it was written afterwards, you destroy the whole system of Orthodox preterism, which I hold to. And we wouldn't want that to happen now, would we? if you'll excuse the circular argument there. So we're going to assume that 1 John is written before AD 70. So now let's begin with verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life? What was from the beginning? John is emphasizing the physical body of Jesus, and that's why he says what, probably, instead of who, who was from the beginning. He's really talking about Jesus. It's not really talking about the gospel, which was in the beginning. He's talking about Jesus because he talks about seeing, hearing, and touching. Hearing, seeing, and touching Jesus. He mentions his senses. He starts out by saying what we have heard. When did John hear Jesus? Well, he was on the voice. He was at the baptism of Jesus. When there was a voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism declaring Jesus to be the Son of God, I say he was at the baptism of Jesus. Maybe he wasn't. Actually, he got picked up later up in Galilee, but he had heard about it. He's talking about we here. We, that's we, and John and his fellow apostles. So his fellow, some of his fellow apostles heard that voice at the baptism of John. And then, of course, John would have made, had many private conversations with Jesus and heard his voice. And, of course, John heard Jesus' public teaching as, as everyone did. So John is, an eye, is a witness of Jesus' Jesus's speech. Now, I need to go into why John is making such a big deal about hearing, seeing, and touching Jesus. Is because he is fighting proto-gnostic heretics of the docetist type. A docetist is someone who believes that Jesus had no body. He was a ghost. And so John is saying, no, he was not a ghost. 
You don't hear ghosts, see ghosts, and touch ghosts. You can't do that. Jesus was, he had a physical body. And so John is, is fighting a heresy that we don't have too much today. Today our heresy is he's, he's fully human. He had a body all right, but he wasn't God. So we have different heresies today. That's what John is fighting against. And then he says, not only have we heard Jesus, but he says what we have seen with our eyes. So now he goes to sight. They saw the, the apostles saw Jesus eating, drinking, sleeping, walking. They saw him as a human being. Of course, that's one of the main points that, G, that John is trying to make. What we have observed and have touched with our hands. The observation, of course, would be what he has seen. He's repeating that. And what we have touched with our hands. For example, Peter held Jesus by the hand when Peter climbed into the boat after, when Jesus climbed into the boat after walking on the water. When John leaned on Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper, he touched him. When Thomas put his hand in Jesus' side that second Sunday after Resurrection Sunday, and doubting Thomas became believing Thomas, they touched him. Jesus was no ghost. Notice the increasing scale of the value of proof. We start out with hearing. Seeing is better than hearing. Touching is even better than seeing. So it goes hearing, seeing, touching. Stronger and stronger, he builds his case. Contract, Jameson Fawcett Brown makes the point about the heathens trying to find God. They can't find him. Acts 17:27. he did this, which is he made man to live all over the earth. He, he stretched man all across the earth and gave, gave him boundaries to live. He did this, and this is Paul speaking, so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him. That reach out means groping after with the hands, according to Jameson Fawcett and Brown. So they might grope after God with their hands. Well, that's pretty sad, is it not? But Jesus, you could hear, see, and touch. No groping there. You could see God if you had the eyes of faith. But heathens didn't have that opportunity. And then John says in verse 1, what was from the beginning. That means from the beginning of all eternity. And so Jesus, that shows that Jesus is eternal. And everything he's talking about here is concerning the word of life. Word speaks of revelation. If I want to reveal my inner thoughts to you, I have to speak a word. God wants to reveal his inner thoughts to mankind. He speaks the word, and the word is Jesus. The word was with God because the word was God. And then the word was spoken to the world so that we might hear and understand God. First John 1, 2, that life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. Now, verse 2 is a parenthesis between verse 1 and 3. And in fact, King James translation actually puts parentheses in the, in, around verse 2. He's still talking about evidence. We have seen it and we testify. He's talking about evidence. A little bit of evidentiary apologetics there. We testify and declare to you the eternal life. Eternal life. Here's what John Gill says. The Lord Jesus, who is the creator of all things and the fountain of life to all sentient and intellectual beings. Very fancy way of saying that he gives life to everything that moves. And notice it was eternal life, which means that eternal life means you can't lose your salvation because then your life isn't eternal, is it? Now, every other meaning ought to consider that word eternal life. If he gives you eternal life, that means it's eternal. You don't lose it. NIV study Bible says Jesus is the living one who has life in himself. Notice that Jesus himself is called the eternal life. We're used to saying we have eternal life, but here John says, I, we declare to you, the eternal life, that's Jesus, that was with the Father. The Jesus was the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. And, of course, we, we participate in that eternal life, too. Now, here's some scriptures talking about Jesus is the eternal life. 
John wrote these in the Gospel, John 11:25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the one of the Mary and Martha sisters of Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Jesus lives, we live. Jesus is life, we're in him, we have life. John 14, 6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to come to the Father and have life? You come through Jesus. Jesus is life. 1 John 5, 11, in our very book that we're studying now, last chapter, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. 1 John 5, 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. And always I like to take in, translate in as in union with. We are in union with the true one, that is, in union with his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So Jesus himself is called eternal life. And then, of course, the other scriptures say we have that eternal life. 1 John 5, 11, God has given us eternal life. He's given us Jesus. And Jesus is eternal life, and so we have eternal life. I'm having to pause here just a minute to let that sink in. That's some really good news, eternal life. Eternal life that was with the Father. Jesus was with the Father and was revealed to us. That with the Father shows that there were two distinct persons in the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son. They were one nature, one essence of God, but they were distinct person, persons. And was revealed to us. That's the apostles. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and the others, they didn't get to see Jesus incarnate. The Old Testament prophets didn't get to see Jesus incarnate. But by golly, the early apostles did. They got to see the incarnate Word of God. Now, sometimes in the Old Testament, there might have been an epiphany, and Jesus might have appeared, like to Gideon's parents, for example, things like that. Jacob wrestling with the angel of God, probably Jesus. But they didn't really get to see Jesus incarnate living a life, living a human life like the apostles did. So this was very privileged, a very privileged position from which the apostles are speaking, and so we need to listen to them. They got evidence. We have seen it, John says. We go now to verse 3, 1 John 1. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So this verse introduces the key word, I've just named this chapter, verses 1 through 10, as fellowship. Full stop. Fellowship. That's what we're talking about here. That's his main theme. He is hitting the evidence again, though, in verse 3, what we have seen and heard. He's hitting that hard, hitting against those docetist proto-gnostic heretics who think that who thought that Jesus only had a ghostly body. We declare to you so that you may have fellowship along with us. Now, fellowship is from the Greek word koinonia. It means to share, to have fellowship with, to have union with, to have communion with, to participate in. So it means a sharing of life. So John is declaring to his readers all that he's seen and heard of Jesus Christ so that his readers might have fellowship along with us. Now, what does that mean? Fellowship with each other or fellowship with God? Well, I'm sure it means both. But here, eventually it's going to mean both, but here he's mainly talking about our fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Again, two persons of the Trinity split out because our fellowship is with both. They're both God, but they're distinct persons. Our fellowship is with Jesus and the Father. Our sharing of life is with Jesus and the Father. Our union is with the Father. Our union is with the Son. We are in union with God. Now, folks, that's why Christianity is such a powerful religion, because we have true, true union with the God who made us. 
So John is saying our fellowship, the apostles' fellowship, is with the Father and the Son, and he's saying you can have fellowship along with us, just like us, just like we, us apostles have fellowship with the Father and the Son. So do you Christians, non-apostles that I'm writing to. You can have fellowship along with the Father and Son, fellowship with the Father and fellowship with the Son. Now we go to verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. All right, first of all, there's a textual problem. About half the manuscripts say that we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Other half the manuscripts say we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says it's about 50-50 split, almost evenly balanced. The King James has has your, we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. All right, well, I think it's, well, let's just take it either way. We are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Why? I mean, if you do the things that um, John is talking about in this book, basically loving your brother, that kind of thing, that's going to make your joy complete. And that's fine. Or if it's, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete, it's con- conveying the idea that a an apostle who takes his disciple and makes his disciple closer and closer to Jesus and more and more transformed into the image of God, he gets joy out of that too. Now, I know that because I haven't been in China and watched Chinese Christians grow, and they grow faster than they do here in America because America's, American Christianity is pretty blunted and benighted. But over there in China, boy, I mean, they mean business over there. And every time I would see this, I'd get happy. In fact, there's one young Chinese disciple who got saved a year ago. I had witnessed to her, but I thought she was hopeless. I kind of gave up because she was so screwed up. And then two, three years later, after I left China, I was back at home. I get this contact on WeChat, Chinese social media. And by golly, she's an on-fire Christian. So I started talking to her over the Internet. And just when I get depressed... In fact, I was depressed last night. I called her up and said, let's talk. I want to hear what's happening in your life. And she talks about how God is moving in her life. And guess what? And I tried to give her some help, too. I tried to give her some help about how to avoid legalism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that made me feel good. But but it also, just the, the whole watching her grow, grow, grow. I gave her some scriptures here and there. You know, I did, I did a little thing. But she's got a lot of other, she's got two pastors over there. Uh, she goes to two churches, three <laughs> three prayer meetings every week. I mean, Lord have mercy. She she has totally sold her life out to Jesus. So when you see that, what does that do? Well, that makes yours truly happy. Makes my joy complete. So I'm not so depressed about the coming destruction of America, the United States of Sodom and Gomorrah. John says we are writing these things. What things? The whole epistle, the whole book of First John, so that our joy may be complete. As you readers become more and more mature in Christ. John Gill says it is the joy of the ministers of the word when the saints are established in the faith. And that's just what I was saying here, here to that. Here's some scriptures about how the joy of the minister is made complete by the joy of the one ministered to. Here's John 4:36. Jesus is speaking. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life, so the sower and reaper can rejoice together. Well, that's not quite on point. The sower is the one who plants the word. The reaper is the one who finally leads the one into the end of the kingdom. That's really not on point. Let's do another one. Philippians 2, 2. Paul says, Fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focused on one goal. Fulfill my joy, Paul says. If you have one mind, if you have one love, if you have the same feelings for one another and you're focused on one goal, obviously you're mature Christians and that makes me happy. It fulfills my joy. 
Philippians 4.1. So then, my brothers, you are dearly loved and longed for. My joy and crown. So Paul's believers were his joy. You talk, you talk to anybody that ministers the word of God, and they will tell you to watch little kids grow. Think of even in the family. What do young parents do? And the grandparents. They look at the little kids and watch them grow, and they, whoo, look at here. I mean, I saw somebody. I actually got to see, just by chance, using WeChat, I happened to see this little Chinese baby walk for the first time, and the baby's father was outside the room temporarily and came back in. He missed it. Oh, my gosh. Oh, he missed seeing the baby walk for the first time. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I can't remember when my kids walked for the first time. It's not that big a deal. But it is a big deal to parents watching their kids grow. So it's the same thing with Christian parents. You got disciples, you watch them grow, they're going to make you happy when they grow. And likewise, when they screw up, it's very depressing. I've had that experience too. But anyway, it's a wonderful thing to minister the gospel to young Christians and watch them grow. And if we, and if this verse is translated, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It expresses that sentiment exactly. So that our joy may be complete. That could be the mean spiritual joy in this life, a joy in the world to come. I think he's talking about this life. Be made complete. The apostles' joy was had begun because they had already tasted that the Lord is good. But now, as Adam Clark says, John says, I'm going to show you the height of your Christian calling. And that's going to make my joy even more, more complete. Complete means mature, full. NIV Study Bible says, John's joy in the Lord couldn't be complete until the readers share the true knowledge of Christ. That's the way it is. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. Now this is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. Now this is the message we have heard from him, that him is Jesus. John 1, verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And so Jesus' life shone on the earth and illumined men who saw his life. So Jesus is light, and in 1 John 1, 5, God is light. So both God and Jesus are said to be light. Now what is light a symbol of? James Fawcett Brown says, Light is the fountain of wisdom, purity, beauty, joy, and glory. John Gill says God is pure and holy. So anytime you think about light, just think about purity, sinlessness, radiance, glory, and that kind of thing. And I've already mentioned Jesus is called light just like God is, 1 John 2, 8. In our next chapter, yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The true light, that means the real light, the light that exists, is shining on the earth. Here's some examples of how Jesus appeared as light. When Paul was on the road to Damascus, remember there was a bright blazing light in the midday that blinded him. When Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration, again another blinding light. And when you're talking about heaven, you're talking about light. Why is light such a great metaphor for Jesus and for God? Well, in the physical, this is my opinion. I'm I'm making this up. I mean, I I don't mean to say I'm making it up. I'm providing this analogy as a suggestion to you. In the physical universe, light is the one thing whose speed cannot be transcended. That's the limit, the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second, and that's it. Light is the absolute limit. Nothing can go faster than, than that. Well, guess what? God is the absolute limit. There's nothing beyond him. That's it. You don't go farther than God. And it wouldn't surprise me that the God who made the physical world in his image, or or, I shouldn't say in his image, but with his characteristics, is the same God made, the the earth that was made was made by, by God. It would not be surprising that the physical earth would share some of the characteristics of the God who made it. I mean, think about corn, unless it's grain of seed, a grain of corn dies when it's planted into the ground before it comes to life. 
So, yeah, a lot of things in nature, sheep, for example. I mean, I'm sure God made sheep so we could have a metaphor to use for us, and corn so we could have a metaphor to use. And I think he made light so we could, we could have a metaphor to use. Nothing can transcend the speed of light in the physical universe. Likewise, spiritually, nothing can transcend God. Also, another interesting thing about light is scientists can't figure out what it is. You know, there's an old debate in physics. Is light waves or is it particles? Now, I, I like to read physics stuff. It's really interesting. It's mostly over my head. But when they start talking about how they discovered, the, how they do the experiments to decide whether the light's waves or particles, and sure enough, it comes out sometimes waves and sometimes particles, scientists can't figure it out. Just like God is too deep for mere human understanding. So light's a great metaphor. God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him, John says in verse 5. No darkness there means that there's not even one imperfection in him. That means sin. There's absolutely not one sin, not one imperfection. That's why no sinful person can be in his presence because God is light. There's no darkness in him. If he saw, if you got in, if he had fellowship with you, if he joined himself to you and you were sinful, that means God would have sin in him. And that ain't going to happen, folks. There's no darkness, absolutely no darkness in him. We go to verse 6, chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. Now, we're going to get into some controversy here at the end of the chapter, and it, and it involves who this we is. If we say, if John is referring to backslidden believers, we end up with one way to interpret the verses. But if we say, if we, meaning we people in the church, including unbelieving false professors who are heretics, say, we come up with another way of interpreting the scripture. I'm going to take the view that when John says, if we say, he's talking about people in the church, including heretics, the docetist heretics, who are not speaking the truth. So let's do it that way first. If we say, if we in the church say, if we are a heretic and say, we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness. And that's why I think it's heretics, because Christians don't walk in darkness. So these are people who are pretending to be church members, fellow brothers and sisters, but they're walking in darkness, so they're not. But they're claiming to be. They're claiming to have fellowship with God. So if we erroneously and falsely say we have fellowship with him, with God, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. He's saying the false teachers are liars. They're not practicing the truth. Now, of course, he's not saying we apostles are lying and not practicing the truth. He's talking about we in general, we in the church, because these people went out with us, but they were not of us. They were in the church. You know, they were claiming to be Christians, kind of like the Eastern Oriental lightning cult in China. That's what that's what cultists do. That's what heretics do. They insinuate themselves into the love feast, as in Jude and Second Peter, into their love feast, springs without water, mist that the wind blows away, reefs hidden in the darkness, as they ate the Lord's Supper with them. So this is what these people are. They're, they're sneaky, hypocritical heretics, and they're claiming to have fellowship with Jesus, but they're walking in darkness. And John wants to warn his people. That's one of the purposes of the book, is to, so Christians can tell the true light, the true believers from the false believers. In fact, a lot of commentators have tests, and I wish I'd have done that in my notes, but I didn't do it. But there's the, fel the fellowship test. I think that's the one we're doing now. There's the moral test. If somebody's immoral, he's not in... And with Jesus, there's some other tests too. But this is one of the tests. you got people walking in darkness, claiming with their mouth that they have fellowship with God, but they're walking in darkness. They're liars. They're not believers. Now, John Gill agrees with me on this option. He says that John is referring to unbelievers and that John is probably referring to the docetic-like heretics he was writing against, these docetists who don't believe that Jesus had a real body. 
these unbelievers, liars who have insinuated themselves into the life of the church, as I just said. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. The Gnostics, against whose errors it is supposed this epistle was written, were great pretenders to knowledge to the highest degrees of the divine illumination and the nearest communion with the fountain of holiness, while their manners were excessively corrupt. Well, so I got Gill and Clark on my side, so I think that sounds pretty good. John is complaining about heretics who are lying. First John 2, 4, the one who says, I have come to know him yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. The truth, on the other hand, is established in Christ. We read in John 3, 21, but anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light. There's truth and light that are equated to each other so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. So in the gospel, not the letter I'm talking about, but the gospel, John equates truth and light. Ephesians 4.21, Paul writing, Assuming you heard about him and were taught in him because the truth is in Jesus. John 14.16, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So truth is associated with light. It's a truth associated with life. But darkness, in verse 6, 1 John 1, is associated with lying and not practicing the truth. Exact opposite. Truth is light. Falsity is darkness. Lying is darkness. We go down to verse 7, chapter 1, 1 John. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sins. Now, this is one more indication to me that verse 6 is talking about heretics, because the but at the beginning of verse 7 makes a contrast between the heretics in verse 6 who are walking in darkness and not walking in the truth, and who are liars. But in verse 7, now we're going to talk about Christians who are doing exactly the opposite. We talking about we church members, we walk in the light, walk is a metaphor for live. If we live in the light, that's Jesus, if we live in Jesus, if we live in union with Jesus, in union with the light, as he himself is in the light, because Jesus is light, he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So now we've already mentioned fellowship with God in a previous verse. Now we're talking about fellowship not only with God, but with one another. And to do that, you have to be a Christian. You can't be a heretic like in verse 6. So, Now think about this, if Jesus is ahead of us on the path and he's bathed in light, and then I'm walking on the path and Jesus' light encompasses me, and then I have another fellow believer who also is in the light and Jesus' light encompasses him, well what is that going to say about the light encompassing both of us? Obviously, the light is going to cover both of us. So now we can turn and look at one another and have fellowship with one another and say, hey, the light that's in me is in you, and we can talk about the same Jesus. We can... We can love the same Jesus. We have fellowship with one another. We have koinonia with one another. We can share one another's lives. We can have communion with one another. We can eat the Lord's Supper with one another. With one another. That's communion. We can share material goods with one another if we walk in the light. The blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. That's how we know that John is now talking about Christians. Blood is a symbol of life, of course. You lose your blood, you lose your life. Jesus gave his blood. That means he gave his life. Why? So that we wouldn't have to give our lives as punishment for our sins. And so Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sins. Now, I've given you what I think is the true interpretation, but I must point out here that a lot of people talk about, refer to this verse to unspiritual Christians, or shall we say backslidden Christians. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins when we get out of the darkness and get into light. Uh-uh, I don't think so. The scripture is more positive about Christians. Ephesians 5.8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. One more point here in verse 7, John says we have fellowship with one another. I'm assuming that's with Christian A and Christian B. 
with brothers and sisters. We have fellowship with one another. John Gill makes the point that he could be the believer in God. In fact, he affirms that. We have fellowship with God, and God has fellowship with us, so that's fellowship with one another. Could be, could be both fellowship with one another, or Jameson Fawson Brown says it's both. We have fellowship with each other, and we have fellowship with God. I, I don't think you can prove things one way or the other, but I think logically, if you have fellowship with God, you're going to have fellowship with your fellow believer. If you have fellowship with your fellow believer, you will have fellowship with God and Jesus. The blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. Here's a good verse that is not often quoted in this context. Acts 20, 28. This is Paul in front of the, the Ephesian elders in Miletus, the Ephesian port city, as he's on his way back to Jerusalem at the end of his third journey. Acts 20, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock that the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The church of God was bought. Bought means like you're in slavery and then somebody comes and pays the redemption price, the purchase price, the redemption price, and then now you are released from slavery and you walk free. So Jesus gave his blood, i.e. his life, so that we could live. He gives his life so that we can live. We now turn to verse 8, 1 John 1. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, who's the we refer to? Well, if it refers to Christians, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest, then John is included in the we, and John is a Christian. The problem with that is, when do Christians, have you ever heard a Christian go around saying, I don't sin, I haven't got any sin? Most Christians are constantly lamenting their sins. So, as Adam Clark Excuse me. Yes, Adam Clark says the we is probably referring to the people in the church who are heretics. If we, amongst our Christians, professing brethren, if one of those says, if we say, we have no sin, <clears throat> that is a heretic who is deceiving himself and the truth is not in us. I, I guess it's possible for Christians to say, I haven't gotten any sin, any particular sin, and he deceives himself. Christians do that all the time. But I think John's talking about more than that. He's talking about we have no sin, period. We are a heretic, and we believe that the body is just a ghost, so therefore we can do whatever we want with it, and it's not sinful because it doesn't matter. The body is just irrelevant. So we can fornicate with it. We can get it drunk. We can be gluttons with it. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any difference. Now, John Gill, in making an argument that the we here is talking about heretics, not Christians, he says this, quote, as a, he says Christians are very aware of their sin, quote, as appears by the ingenuous confessions of sin made by the saints in all ages, by their complaints concerning it and groans under it, by the continual war in them between flesh and spirit, and by their prayers for the discoveries of pardoning grace, and for the fresh application of Christ's blood for cleansing, by their remissness in the discharge of duty, and by their frequent slips and falls, and often backslidings. Well, you think about it. When's the last time you ever heard a Christian say he didn't have any sin? I've, I've been a Christian for over half a century, 60 years. I've never heard of it, not one time. I do not believe that John here is talking about Christians saying they don't have any sins. Here's another quote from Adam Clark. It is very likely that the heretics against whose evil doctrines the apostle writes, denied that they had any sin or indeed any savior. So Adam Clark agrees with me here. So the we could be just referring to it, we, we humans say, or he could say we church members say. Either way, it's not talking about Christians because Christians don't ever say we have no sin. Now we're going to get down to verse 10. It's going to say basically the same thing as verse 8. 
If we say we have no sins, we are liars and the word is not in us, is what verse 10 says. This says if we have no sins, verse 8, we have no sins, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us, is basically the same thing. So now we go to verse 9, which is one of the most oft-quoted verses for evangelical Christians, especially young Christians. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if that verse is quoted for evangelism purposes to somebody who's not a believer, of course, it's not a problem. But it becomes a problem when we talk about if we Christians confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If there's a condition for his forgiveness, there is a forgiveness for his, a condition for his cleansing. We got to confess our sins first. And then, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, what happens about if I'm in, in, a, in a car accident and I'm angry, I've got road rage, and bam, I get hit and killed before I have a chance to confess my sins. Does not my salvation then depend upon my confession? which is works righteousness, because we know it's only faith and repentance, two sides of the same coin, that we get saved by, saved by grace through faith, not by if we confess a particular sin. And I'm telling you, when I die or you die, there's probably going to be a lot of sins that you hadn't thought about that you hadn't had a chance to confess yet. Does that mean that God doesn't, is not going to forgive you for that? Well, that to me is an insuperable problem. Why do we need Jesus to cleanse us from sins when we're, our sins are already forgiven when we become a Christian? It makes it sound like we can get saved and unsaved as we confess and don't confess, which, of course, really grates against my Calvinist soul. I don't believe you can lose your salvation like that. Well, here is the way that most evangelicals solve this problem. They say that forgiveness here is not in the sense of eternally pardoning us from sins to escape eternal condemnation, but it's just merely forgive us our sins so that we can restore fellowship with God. The analogy would be if I had a son who, who robbed a bank and he hasn't asked my forgiveness for doing that. And so I cut off fellowship with my son. I don't talk to him anymore, but he's still my son. And so that's the same idea here is when you sin as a Christian, you're still his son or daughter, but he's not talking to you right now because of your sin. Well, actually, I will, I will give the people who say that credit that that is plausible. Let me give you a quote from John Gill, who apparently believes this. He says, Forgiveness of sin here intends not the act of forgiveness, as in God, proceeding upon the bloodshed and sacrifice of Christ, which is none at once, and includes all sin, past, present, and to come, but it's an application of pardon and grace to a poor, sensible sinner, humbled under a sense of sin and confessing it before the Lord. And confession of sin is not the cause or condition of pardon, nor of the manifestation of it, but is descriptive descriptive of the person and points him out to whom God will and does make known his forgiving love. Now, that's a very fancy way of saying what I just said. God restores his fellowship with the sinning Christian when the sinner confesses, but he's saved all the way through whether he confesses or not. And that would solve the problem, but that's not the best way to solve the problem. In my humble opinion, I think what he's talking about, if we, including if we, these heretical members of our church, if we confess our sins, if we as church members confess our sins for the first time in order to get saved because we are a heretic that doesn't believe in Jesus, but now if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to get us saved. In my opinion, that's the simplest answer. And I believe that fits the context pretty good, pretty, pretty well. It fits the context because in verse 8, the verse preceding, the heretics are confessing they have no sin. But if we do confess that 
they have that we have sin, we get saved. It fits the previous verse. And of course, it fits the next verse, which basically says the same thing as verse 8. If we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. He's contrasting those heretics who, if they confess, they would get saved. But if they don't confess, they make Jesus a liar. Verse 8 and verse 9, I think context wins that argument. John is talking about heretics that need to confess their sins and get cleansed. Why is God said to be he, as God, why is God said to be faithful? Because he's faithful to his word. He's promised forgiveness to anyone who asks for it. Why is he righteous to forgive? Because righteous means, justified means in accordance with the law. The law says if there's a transgression, somebody must pay for it. There's got to be a penalty. Jesus has paid for that penalty with his blood, with his life, and therefore it is perfectly just and perfectly right and perfectly in accordance with God's law to forgive us our sins. Here's a relevant scripture in Psalm 143.1. Lord, hear my prayer. In your faithfulness, listen to my plea. And in your righteousness, answer me. Faithfulness, listen to my plea. And in your righteousness, answer me. That's interesting, isn't it? Faithful and righteous. Those two words put together right there in Psalms. Faithful and righteous. God loves to forgive your sin. Zechariah 8.8. 8. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. This is talking about, of course, the exiles in Babylon are going to come back to Jerusalem. They will be my people and I will be their faithful and righteous God. So in the Old Testament, God is said to be faithful and righteous. And here John says that God is faithful and righteous. He's faithful according to his word and righteous according to his law. That's my little saying I made up. We go to verse 10. If we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Again, is it the we Christians? Well, Christians don't say they don't have any sin. So it's talking about the heretics. If we, if a heretic says he doesn't have any sin, we make God a liar because God says all are sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are like sheep have gone astray. There is poison, poison under our tongues, like the poison of an asp, I think it says in Romans, under our tongue. We are lousy, filthy, rotten, dirty sinners. And you're saying you don't have any sin? I like watching these Ray Comfort videos. Are you a good person? I'm a good person. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're saying they don't have any sin. They make God a liar. His word's not in us. And again, we don't have any sin. This is, is referring to that particularly pre-Gnostic, descetic heretic saying that sins, that bodily acts weren't sinful because the body's not important. God's not going to save the body so we can do whatever we, heck we want with it. There was two ways you could go with that. You could end up with asceticism. The body's not important, so we need to whip it. We need to not have sex. We need to not eat food. We need to not have sleep. We need to not have comfort. And we need to wear hair shirts, that kind of thing, asceticism. Or on the other hand, you can go into libertinism, moral antinomianism, where you just say the body doesn't matter, so we can sin with it and do what we want with it. That's typical of that heresy back then, and so John is probably referring to that when these people are saying we don't have any sin. And again, the purpose of John is trying to distinguish the good guys from the bad guys in the local church so they can maintain the purity of their church. These people who say they don't have sin make God a liar. God speaks the truth when he says every man is full of sin, as I've just said. I mean, look at the Old Testament. The whole purpose of the Old Testament law was to show the man was full of sin. Everybody was this sin everywhere. And people going around, well, we're just basically good people. It just kills me. John Dewey said that. Karl Marx said that. What utter morons could say that mankind is good? Now, that's one thing to say that mankind is worthy, worth, it has worth. Of course it is because we're God's creatures. But to say that we're sinless, that we're basically good? What kind of nonsense is that? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with 1 John chapter 1. In our next 
audio will take up chapter 2. In the first 14 verses of chapter 2, we'll talk about Christ, our advocate, and a new commandment. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.